are listening to Fanholes, a podcast for fans by the fans. Secret Brothers. I have clinical. You guys are like wasting my time right now. Hey, baby. What's going on? This is my microphone voice. <laughs> Where do you buy those at? I need one. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck is going on. I didn't invent honorable mentions, mister. <laughs> I have a headset. It looks way cool. You should all be jealous. I, uh, we are. I'm with Mike on that one. I'm a woman! <laughs> it is our show. It's called Fan Holes, not, you know, what you guys want. <laughs> <laughs> We do a podcast? What the fuck? Your dinner, sir. Well, thank you, Portafoy. You're a useful fellow to have around. Have I told you that, Portafoy? Oh, why the sour look, Portafoy? Can it be that you harbor distaste for your new employer? I think you are a swine. Sir. <laughs> I do admire your candor, Portafoy. I must admit I am very, very lazy, Portafoy. Why, I can't even be bothered to keep this accent straight for very long. Have you noticed, Portafoy? May I leave, sir? Oh, no, not quite yet, Portafoy. You see, there is one last service you must perform today, Portafoy. A service I shall pay you. Eighty dollars for. Eighty dollars? What service do you require, sir? Why, listening to that pop culture podcast made for the fans by the fans with me, Portafoy. We're gonna listen to Fanho's podcast together. Back. Back. Go back into the ground where you belong, Fanho's. Back, Fanho's. Welcome back to another spooktacular episode of Fanholes Podcast. And this month, of course, is continuing our month-long Fanholes Fright Fest. And this is basically, we're going to examine a TV film type spooky scary thing in the first half. And we're going to examine a comic book that is Halloween-centric in the second half. So... Joining us tonight, I'm, of course, Derek, Derek WC. I'm going to be one of your hosts, but joining me tonight are two, count them, two of my creepy fellow fan holes. Why don't you guys give a scream out and let everybody know who's here tonight? Or Good evening. <laughs> it's Michael. Hey, guys, this is Tony, and I'm not finishing this show. I'm not going to be here for the rest of the night. I'll sit for my things in the morning. Nice, nice. Death is final. Death is it. I think not, Mr. Jeremy. 
I think there are things stronger than death and more lasting than the grave. Mr. Portafoy? I think hate is stronger than death, Mr. Jeremy, and I think you're beginning to realize that. So what we are going to be discussing is something that, that Tony suggested that neither Mike nor myself had ever really seen before, but I think it turned out to be a real big hit. It went over well with all of us. And what Tony had suggested was checking out the pilot episode of Night Gallery. And Night Gallery is an anthology series that's earliest pilot episode aired on November 8th in 1969. So we actually checked that out on YouTube. I believe most of the series, I did watch the first episode after that on Hulu. So the majority of the series you can certainly watch on Hulu. And we did check out that pilot episode on YouTube. And basically the framing device that Rod Serling uses in Night Gallery is that he uses an art gallery that features paintings, and I guess that each each painting represents its own short story that he's about to tell, and then you go into the, the specific short story of, of the week, basically. And in the pilot episode, I think normally in the series from week to week, there were usually like two episodes, you know, usually like two paintings, and then they told two short stories throughout the, the course of the series. But for the pilot episode, it's kind of like a, a horror anthology movie type. You know, it's about 90 minutes long or so, and there are three short stories. So I'm just going to go into the quick synopses of the three short stories, and then we will... Well, actually, you know what? Let me let me just do the first short story synopsis, and then we'll talk about it, and then and then we can, you know, move on, and I'll do a synopsis for the the second and third short stories, and then we can discuss that. So the uh, first synopsis is for a piece called The Cemetery. The first short story, entitled The Cemetery, involves a nephew, Jeremy Evans, played by Roddy McDowell, who is the black sheep of a wealthy Southern family. When he murders his rich uncle to inherit his fortune, he and his uncle's longtime butler, Osmond Portafoy, played by Ozzie Davis, will find that vengeance can extend beyond the grave. So that's basically the, the sweet, down-and-dirty short synopsis for The Cemetery. I really liked this. This was awesome. I was like, look, it's Rod I was like, is that Roddy McDowell? Like, after the first, like, three seconds. And I'm like, that is Roddy McDowell. And then, of course, you know, we, we've been we've been yucking it up about Roddy McDowell the whole time. I mean, he's awesome. Don't get me wrong. He's, like, one of the most awesome actors ever. He was, you know, Mad Hatter on the animated series. He was Cornelius in Planet of the Apes. Like, I love Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell is playing a southern black sheep of the family in this episode, and he cannot hold that southern accent to save his life. Like, it's hilarious. It's like, <laughs> it's like, Portafoy! You know, and it's like, and, and I was trying to explain to the guys, like, sometimes they were saying to me, well, you know, maybe it's difficult to go back and forth because they're so different. But I, I, I remember always being sort of told in terms of flow and lilt and, and, and how you basically do that kind of accent because the you know the, i guess it goes back to like the colonists you know the, the colonists who came over to america you know were english speakers and probably had certain type of accents and then that sort of evolved into like sort of a southern lilt so it, it's probably much more difficult because of how similar 
tones can be as opposed to how different they can be where he's he's basically you know you could say portafoy come bring me my tea and then you could easily just do you know portafoy come bring me my tea you know and it's like it's basically the same thing but but he sort of flows back and forth between the two you know and and it, anyway i i love it it's it's fucking awesome so. <laughs> Of course, you know me. I was like, you know, hey, it's Malcolm McDowell. Oh, no, it's not. My bad. There's <laughs> <laughs> two different guys. Two different guys. Roddy and Malcolm. Yeah, yeah. They're two different people. They're two yeah. different people, Portafoy! <laughs> one, one, one of them, as, as you famously have mentioned, Tony, cannot hold a gun gangster style to save his life. <laughs> it's like... Dad blast it, this phaser automatically corrects it whenever I try to hold it all cool like. <laughs> Damn you technology. Oh man. Uh, yeah, this this is actually a really fun fun like episode. It's like if they went for the strongest episode of the three to start with, I would say this is definitely it. And man, it's just I don't know, I mean uh Ronnie McDowell is is quite the bastard in this. Uh, you know, uh Accent, you know, being hit or miss, notwithstanding, and like it, it's really cool because this is one of those things. I'm gonna, I wanna get on my soapbox for like five seconds because I'm gonna sound like an old man, but this is like a horror story where you don't need to see the damn monster, and it's you know still scary. So you know, well, it's, yeah, it's really it, cool stuff. It's very, very effective uh, when when they not seeing something. You know, yeah. I mean, basically, they use the the portrait, the painting on the stairway as the tool to inform the audience of what's going on. So, you know, he he basically sticks his his relative, you know, his his uncle in front of a drafty window because he knows the doctor said that if he catches a draft, like that would lead to his death. Which ultimately, Dra- drafts are drafts are like this guy's kryptonite. <laughs> and he and he rolls him in a wheelchair, you know. And, and the guy, you, you'd think like if if you know somebody could talk, they could tell you, you know, hey, this this guy is the black sheep, and he's he's trying to uh, abuse me so he can he can get my fortune. And and so you know, in the, the way the will is written, the the fortune is bequeathed to. Roddy McDowell's mother in the story and any of her sole heirs. So since the mother has also passed away, that just leaves Roddy McDowell, who's like, you know, a wolf in the hen house, kind of licking his chops going, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to eat all these chickens, basically. And he rolls him in front of the window. And and the the uncle is basically like mute. I mean, he's so ill, you know, he can't really speak or anything i don't know if he had a stroke uh, yeah. or what the deal was he, but but he's not he's, he's not really, really bad. he basically communicates like with like a little bell and that introduces the character you know osmond portafoy portafoy who is his his manservant basically you know he's like the alfred to this this weasened old and i guess my take on it was in the original they don't really go into detail but in that opening scene it's like he hands him uh a paintbrush and an easel, and there are all these, you know, paintings hung up on the wall. So you get the idea either he's so well off that all he does is sit around and paint portraits of himself all day, or w- one thing I took out of it was, you know, maybe he was a famous artist and that's where his wealth came from. I, I mean, I don't know if that's 
you know, there's probably neither here nor there, but th those were some things I was thinking, like, wh where did the wealth originate from? Is it that they were all just born into it? Or maybe he, you know, the, yeah. you get the idea, maybe the uncle earned it, you know, he was the one who actually, uh, you know, uh, accumulated this wealth and, and, and is, you know, kind enough to, even though him and his sister must have had some kind of falling out, you know, maybe she ran off with a guy from the wrong side of the tracks, which is why Roddy McDowell's character, Jeremy, is such a douchebag, you know, like maybe that's why. But anyway, it, you know, they don't really go into it a whole bunch, but you can see there was lots of thought put into just this little short story. So that's that's kind of really cool. And the the painting, basically, like he keeps passing a painting. I guess he did a painting of the graveyard, the cemetery that's outside, which is like outside of the home, which is like the family plot. So that's, I guess, where everybody ends up once they pass away. You know, they, they end up in the backyard in the house, you know, and everybody can go visit them really easily. I guess it's like, you know, the Wayne Cemetery or something where it's like, you know, Alfred, I'll just be in you know, the cemetery visiting my mom and dad, you know, and he just has to like, <laughs> you know, walk down the, the hill or whatever. And they're right there, you know, so it, it basically would be like you keep passing a portrait in the Wayne household. And then every time you see it, you know, the corpses of the Waynes are slowly getting up and you look at the painting the next time. And then the Waynes are like right at the front door banging on it. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, and, and so there's that you, you don't actually see, you know, they, they didn't, you know, and, and this is not a case of like, you know, sometimes I'm I'm derogatory towards that where I'm like they couldn't spend the money to make a gross zombie, you know, and it's kind of judgmental about it. But I, I think this works extremely well because what you don't see is much more scarier. You know, just hearing the knock at the door or the door opening and hearing people scream is much more effective than actually yeah. seeing, you know, something covered in bugs and dressed that, up all Rick Baker style or whatever. Yeah, like that that always like freaks me out. Like the like the your I think your imagination always makes it worse. Like this sort of device when movies or plays. Like I remember when I was in like middle school, we went to go see a production of The Monkey's Paw and uh or it was like an oh, yeah. it was probably like an anthology of a bunch of different like scary stories. And uh one of them was The Monkey's Paw. And, like, if you're familiar with that story, like, at the end, they wish, like, their son back to life. But, like, what they don't understand is, like, they wish him, he, he had been, like, like mangled by some, like, I forgot, like, uh, some kind of thresher or some kind of, like, machine that, like, sucked him in and mangled him. So they brought him back, like, the way he came back. So, like, the, the direction of the play, like, you never actually see the son, but, like, they kind of cast his shadow on the wall. And like you know, the father can see it, but the 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 wife can't. And I don't know. It was just like that's always a lot scarier to me than actually seeing it. Yeah, I think I think the sense of the unknown is what's scary about it. Because you, you it, for me, it's like I I don't know that I use my imagination and I picture something. It's not like I picture the old uncle or Roddy McDowell or anybody as like this terrible zombie or whatever. It's it's just the fact that what the hell is behind that door? You know, like, yeah. what, what the hell? Like, what's going yeah. on, you know? Yeah. And stuff, and, and that and kind of... There's also... Freaky. There's also some, like, psychological stuff, too, because, like, every time you look at the painting, you know, it's changing. But, you know, uh, good old Portafoy, he's like, <clears throat> you know, I don't see anything different, sir. It's the same painting. And he's like, what? Don't you see it? <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's he's 
basically kind of thinking he's he's cracking up as well because he he feels like he's the only person who notices anything because that's his touchstone you know portafoy is his touchstone for like look 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 at you know look look at that pain don't you see it change <laughs> you know and all this kind of stuff and 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 so portafoy's like the only thing i see changing is your accent sir <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> do you want to do you want to talk about Ozzy Davis? I know Mike, you were you were really taken with his performance, and you said how much you liked it. So do you want to you want to go into that? Or? Yeah, like I, I really liked him. Like he he really played really well off Roddy McDowell, and like I don't know, he he played yeah like a kind of like older, like dignified, like Alfred type kind of, and uh, you could tell that like he had served like Roddy McDowell's uncle like pretty faithfully and very patiently. And, uh, like, I don't know, like, it seemed like he w- he was all cool, but then, like, there's, like, a, t- a twist at the end. Yeah, yeah, and I thought that was interesting, I, too, because I, I, I don't think I saw that coming, but... but I thought I, that was kind of, yeah, I thought that was kind of subverting of, like, I don't know, like, sort of stereotypes or, yeah, like, cliches yeah, where yeah. What, what they kind of call it, like, um like on like TV tropes or whatever, or maybe it's just a common trope name, but they, they kind of call it like the magical Negro or whatever, like where only, only the black guy can see like the supernatural thing that's happening or, or isn't unnerved by it. But yeah, like, yeah. You, you, I don't know, Derek, if you want to like explain like the twist at the end. Cause basically you, you go through it and, and Roddy McDowell of course believes that, the uncle is knocking at the door because the paintings are constantly changing. And so he, he freaks out and he ends up basically like falling down the stairs because he's in such a panic. He's in, he's basically like at that point he's, he's been cracked. He's lost his mind and is just screaming his head off. And so what ends up happening is, he falls down the stairs and breaks his neck. And then Porterfoy comes in and dutifully, you know, picks up the phone is like, doctor, you know, it, it appears Mr. Evans has broken his neck. Send an ambulance or whatever. I believe he is dead. And then, you know, you think, oh, well, you think, oh, maybe that's the end of this. Like, you know, the, the, obviously, you know, Evans was not a nice person. He, he, he set up his uncle to die. And, and now, you know, this psychological break has, has gotten him his comeuppance. But as, as we continue to watch the story, it seems that there was another stipulation in the will where if there were no blood relatives as the sole surviving heirs, that Porterfoy would be the one who would inherit all the wealth and, and home and, and accumulate all that stuff because he had dutifully served you know, the uncle for, for his entire life and everything. And so now we're, we're treated to, you know, the whole time Porter Foy is in this very traditional butler's garb, you know, a, a black suit and, and, and white shirt and everything like that. But that, <clears throat> excuse me. And now all of a sudden Porter Foy is like in his pimping, you know, like <laughs> smoking jacket where it's like is all colorful and everything. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and you, you see, he's talking to this, this artist, and he's like, you have more than earned your pay, sir. And basically the artist made about 12 of those portraits. And, you know, so it was a copy of the portrait that the uncle had painted of the cemetery. But he slowly changed, you know, so that it looked like somebody was coming out of the grave. So so the insinuation is this was all the mental manipulation on the part of Porterfoy to secure his 
place in the will, you know, to, to make sure there were no sole surviving heirs. So he, he basically drove Jeremy Evans insane and had him, you know, break his own neck. And there's even that, that kind of insinuation from the artist is like, well, what if he hadn't fallen down the stairs? Then what would have you done? And he's like, oh, I would have handled it, you know, like, and, and so you can see the, the, I, I think also the twist besides, I guess what you're talking about, like the, the idea that the character could see supernatural things when nobody could and twisting it to where he couldn't see them. You know, they're, they're basically subverting it saying not only was there nothing supernatural, but he was the one behind it. But then it's like a double come up and because yeah, they, they, they twist it back, like <laughs> they, they twist it back where, where Jeremy Evans actually does rise up out of the grave and, and get vengeance on Porter boy as well. And, and of course, Porter boy is left in his pimp and smoking jacket screaming when the door opens and everything. And it's all freaky. And, and the thing I thought about that, that's interesting is I think, especially in the current climate, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to go like super, super political with it, but in the current climate, you know, you, you may have a group, a contingent of people who, who kind of see Porter Foy and go, yeah, Porter Foy is a good guy. He got what he does, you know, like, like basically like for that first half of the segment, he, you know, he, he got, it's funny when you say it, you, you think it might be in a negative context, but he got what was coming to him, meaning he got the money he richly deserved for, you know, serving this white man all these years and all this kind of stuff. But the the twist is and, too, and don't forget like, like uh <clears throat> and as Mike is Mike is fond of saying, originally if uh Evans had just been the only heir and Portafoy had dutifully served his time and like retired, he would have gotten eighty dollars a month. Right, right. There, <laughs> there there was there was that stipulation. Yeah, like he, he was he was definitely taken care of in the will no matter which way it went, like, you know, for basically for life, you know, like he was, he was going to have this stipend, you know, his, his retirement plan, I guess, which, you know, I suppose you could laugh about it, but you know, like at the time, like we, that's what we were joking about. kind of that, uh, you know, I, I was joking with the guys like those old scribbly $20 grandma checks that you would get, you know, certainly went a long way, you know, back in the day, certainly in 1969, that $80 a month, you might like chuckle at now and go, that ain't shit, you know, but maybe back then, you know, it was a lot more than, than uh, what, you, what you're thinking of. But so, I mean, obviously he was thought of in the will and, and, and well thought of, but I, I guess what my point is, is that you, you could conceivably have a contingent of people who think that even though Porter Foy is painted as, uh, the twist is he's also uh, an evil villainous person who was out to accumulate all the wealth for himself. And and you may have a contingent of people that think he's justified because of, of his, you know, how he's treated in life, basically, based on like the color of his skin. And and I th think it's to me, it's refreshing that that it's like, well, he if if he had not gone through with that scheme, then I, I probably would agree with that contingent. Like, yeah, he, he deserved, you know, better than what he, he received or whatever. But since he went through with that, you know, like, then you're kind of like, oh, that's a twist. Like, I didn't expect this loyal, subservient butler guy who seemed to actually show genuine concern for for his master, you know, his real master, the uncle, you know, and and that, you know, oh, hey, you know, like, like, you think he's a nice guy. But the twist is he's actually not so nice a guy. And since he's not so nice a guy, I don't really feel any guilt over, you know, zombie Roddy McDowell coming back out of the grave and, and, you know, doing whatever he does to him at the end there when the door opens, you know, like, I'm kind of like, I think, 
I think the lesson is two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah, 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 yeah. You can't. Yeah, that that's the, probably the most succinct way to put it. And there is like a definite character shift too, like uh, in that segment because like he's talking to the painter, he's kind of a dick to him in a way because he's like, sure, he's paying him, but he's like, oh, you're not a good artist, but you're you're good, you're talented enough to copy other people's work. And I'm like, wow, what an asshole thing to say. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting because I guess you you and and that's why probably Mike enjoys uh, Ozzy Davis's performance because it is kind of nuanced and layered to it. Because even even in that eighty dollars scene, I think that's why you like the eighty dollars scene because there there is that nuance to it where that that's the yeah, moment he ser- where he seems into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's that moment where before he seems like the loyal and steadfast you know butler where he's like. I have had enough of you, sir. Like, you are a scoundrel. You are slime. Like, you know, I will be taking my stuff and leaving. And then the minute Roddy McDowell's like, but Potiphar, there's this little thing in the will about how you're going to get $80, you know, a week. And then then he's kind of like, all of a sudden, it's like you can see his character shift where it's like, I think then he's like, oh, well, then I will stay. You know, like, like eventually, like for all that sanctimonious stuff that he said before, it's like money comes into it. And then it's like it, the, the tone shifts to like, oh, well, now you're not such a scoundrel because I'm getting 80 bucks a month, uh, you know, a week or whatever, you know, and and and, and I'm going to be well taken care of. So, I mean, it's kind of the idea of you, you can sit there and have highfalutin morals, but if somebody finds your price. Then, you know, that that's that moment, that shift where you, you see like, oh, hey, you know, y- your morals weren't as highfalutin as you thought, as long as you're well taken care of and secure, you know. So so there's that aspect to it as well of human nature. It's like you, you may find things abhorrent and everything, but if you if you, you know, it's like as long as your feet are comfortable and your nice pair of Nikes, you don't really question what it took for you to get those nice pair of Nikes. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't, you don't question where they came from or who, who, you know, was forced into child labor to, to get you those nice pair of Nikes, you know? So it's, it's like, I, I, I think there's, there's that aspect on a larger scale for, for everybody. And I, I think another thing that really helps this like little vignette, this little story is, uh, I forgot the director. There, there's another director we'll talk about later, but uh, the director of this, like, it's shot really nicely to where there's like lots of nice lighting and stuff. Like Roddy McDowell is usually in shadows of some sort when he's looking at the picture and the house just seems creepy. You know, it doesn't seem like a house full of life and, you know, like, yay, like what a warm, happy home. It's like, no, yeah, I think a lot of people have died here, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I really like, I, I'm all, another thing that kind of aided in like, in unsettling me basically is like, the paintings themselves, like, I, I think, like, the art style, like, the the sort of sketchiness or, like, expressionistic, like, rendering of the, the you know, the, the people coming out of their graves and stuff was really, like, effective. And I, I know, uh, speaking again to my childhood with things that unsettled me, like, they used to have, um, like, on hard copy, like, special reports of, like, you know, either, like, you know, intruders or home invasions or, like, alien abductions and stuff. And they'd always be accompanied by, like, some artists' renderings of, like, the event. And, like, it it wouldn't, like, they'd always try to go for sort of, like, like I said, like an expressionistic, like, 
kind of raw and like simple but like effective like renderings of like whoever like the intruder the aliens or whatever so like it it would stir some kind of like fright in you basically and i i thought like the painting certainly like like spoke to that yeah certainly like they 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 look very ominous and everything like even even the original one it's one of those things where you kind of wonder like if you had something like that in your house it's like i suppose if you made it yourself you understand why you'd keep it because you made it yourself and you're surrounding yourself with your own artistic endeavors but it's a funny thing of you know how like when you get a girlfriend or something and and there's that you know it's that old trope of there's the the painting with the dogs playing poker and the girlfriend's like what is that like we're getting rid of that right away you know like and and i i get the idea that if there was somebody else who actually lived in that house they'd be like what's with this cemetery painting like let's get this the fuck out of here it's morbid you know like it doesn't look happy you know so like I, I, I well, would... even 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 Ronnie McDowell's character says that he's like, you know, like why why did he paint a graveyard? You know, that's so you know, like yeah, he's he doesn't like the painting to begin with, but even before it starts changing. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's already unsettling before you even get to the the shenanigans of of the changes and all that kind of stuff. And then just just because I I looked it up while we were discussing things, uh, Boris Sagal is the director. Ah. I think that's how you say his name, but that that's the director of the first segment. So so people are following along and everything. But I I mean th- th- like not not to uh, telegraph like my final thoughts on the whole endeavor, but I mean I I really did enjoy this piece. I really liked the cemetery. Uh, of course, you know, having Roddy McDowell as a touchstone was great. Seeing Ozzy Davis was great. Like that, that was kind of cool. I think, I think that's part of that fascination that people still have with like Twilight Zone to this day. You can watch older episodes and then go, oh, look, that's that episode with Robert Redford. You know, <laughs> like you're, you're like seeing like, oh, there's yeah. that episode with Charles Bronson, you know, like when he was like young, <laughs> you know, like, like you're like, oh, awesome. You know, so, so like to me, I got that same sense of wonder or kind of familiarity, but, but seeing it's like something new, but something familiar, you know, that, that weird, you know, kind of, kind of the same twist in the story, but, but that kind of enjoyment of, of, oh, I know this. But it's also brand new to me, you know, like, so it's it's that kind of awesome. Like, I, I don't think it's often that you, you run into that, like, where you know something, but it's also sort of completely brand new to you. So that I, I certainly enjoyed. So so I, I, I would just say, like, th- for this segment specifically, but also, you know, extending to the other segments overall, like, I'm, I'm really glad Tony suggested to uh, check out Night Gallery because this is this is cool. This this was definitely my favorite story. Like I'll say that of the three. So yeah, and it definitely like a, like I'm kind I kind of want to go back and watch some more of these. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I I did end up watching like the first uh, like I guess th- that's what was confusing about this for me because when, when when we said we were going to do the pilot of Night Gallery, I automatically assumed it would be the first episode. So like when you go to Hulu, they don't have the pilot. They've got episode one which has two short stories. And then this, of course, has three short stories. And in a lot of lists that I saw online, it's considered episode zero. And I'm like, what? What do you mean episode zero? You know, or like in some other lists, you know, since we said these are three short stories, it's like these are episodes one through three. And then the episode I watched on Hulu is considered four and five. 
you know, so it's like, well, that makes a little more sense to me, but not really. So it's like, I, I, I thought that was kind of funny, but I didn't know about it. But but kind of speaking of that, like me and Mike's relative inexperience with the series, like, Tony, do you want to go into like how you discovered Night Gallery? Like how you watched it, like go into sort of like a, a reminiscence about that? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, that one that like, we, we were banding about topics for um, our, our, you know, Fright Fest and... I was thinking Night Gallery because honestly, it was it was like the Twilight Zone, and the fact that it was obviously a Rod Serling production. You know, he he had worked hard on it. Um, it kind of got away from him later on. I think the production kind of changed. But uh, the Twilight Zone was a mix of like science fiction or horror or you know like a, kind of a lot a lot of different styles. Night Gallery was predominantly kind of horrific. You know, it was like very suspenseful, very, you know, like creepy, spooky and stuff. It would it'd definitely be something you'd watch in the middle of the night and be like probably a little eked out, you know, especially back in the 60s and early 70s. And I was not alive back then. I'm not that old. But uh, I remember being a kid in the 80s and on my local affiliate, uh, Fox affiliate, that was back when Fox was not the uh, mighty juggernaut in fourth place that it is now. But um, it was just a startup, you know, uh, company and they uh, start television company, so they a lot of the affiliates didn't have a lot of prime time shows. You know, not not prime time. They had prime time shows, but they didn't have a lot of under programming. It was like you had this block of Fox shows, and then whatever else they could show, they would show. So like I remember on Saturday nights, uh, they would show the old Star Trek uh, at eleven o'clock. They show one episode of The Twilight Zone at uh, twelve o'clock, and then at twelve thirty, they show an episode of Night Gallery. And at first, I didn't know what Night Gallery was, because even as a kid, I knew what Star Trek was. I, you know, there, there's that movie that came out, you know, when I was, like, very young. And uh, Twilight Zone was everywhere. I mean, back in the 80s, like, every other channel seemed to have Twilight Zone reruns. But I had never heard of Night Gallery. And I watched it, and it actually, as a kid, it did kind of scare me. There was, like, definitely episodes where I was, like, unnerved, because even Rod Serling seems more sinister in this, you know? In the Twilight Zone, he's like, you know, imagine a dimension, you know, time and space. He seems more like the uh, the uh, the guide who's, like, you know, not really, you know, choosing sides, but in Night Gallery, you know, he's like, this is a painting that depicts how horrible people are and how they die. Let's watch. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. No, you know, you know what I wanted to ask? Cause I, and, and I guess we'll, we'll end up discussing this in some of the other segments, but w- one commonality I noticed, and, and maybe it's like this, like, duh, Derek, of course it does. But I, I'm just curious what, what the answer might be, but it, it seems like there is the, the, story point to always have some kind of piece of art be involved in these tales like you know in the case of of the one we just discussed you know there's the painting and the stairwell and everything stairway and stuff like that and and as we go on we'll see there are other pieces of art that that somehow are you know fit into the story And, and i noticed even watching that what i thought was originally the pilot it also featured you know, occasionally. I, I was I was kind of laughing about that. I was like, "What is it? What is there going to be a painting in every single one or something? Like, and they yeah, all yeah. going to be painting related?" So I'm just kind of curious. Like, the, like uh, is there usually generally like a piece of art in like all three seasons of Night Gallery, or do, does that kind of come? You know, do they sort of does that sort of run away from them after a while, where it becomes harder and harder to sort of squeeze that into the the overall short story. 
I, I will say, I, it, like in some episodes, it doesn't seem to be as prevalent. Like you know, it's not like you know, you know, this painting is very important or this sculpture is very important. But um, it, it, it is kind of a theme, you know. They, they do kind of do that, you know, picture to picture thing. It's like we look at the picture through Serling's Night Gallery, and the actual story itself does have at least some kind of like you know, art kind of thing to it, even if it's like a painting in the background or if like. Because in the next story, I mean, I won't spoil it, but, like, there is art, but it's not exactly, like, a predominant part right, of the story. It's right. just more, yeah, yeah. like, yeah. I mean, it, so. it, it's it's a transitional tool, but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be the main focus of the story. Whereas, I mean, in this case, the, the cemetery, I mean, it is... It is part of the plot. I mean, it's essential to the plot. If you if you somehow got rid of it, then you wouldn't have a plot. Whereas in the second one, eh, you could probably tell that story without that framing sequence. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it, it it it's a reoccurring thing, but it's it's not always like yeah, it's not always like you know, uh, aliens are attacking. Oh my god. I thought they were savages, but look at this painting they have in their UFO. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if, I mean, because I, I remember kind of what you're saying, like watching lineups of things where it's like Star Trek and certainly Twilight Zone. And for me, like a lot of the things I would watch on like Coffee TV 20, you know, it'd be like Monsters or, or Freddy's Nightmares or, you know, whatever syndicated mm-hmm. stuff. Was Tales on, you know? from the Dark Side. Yeah, yeah, Tales from the Dark Side, you know, th- those kind of those kind of anthology type, you know, scary type stuff but i i don't know if i ever i mean i don't know if it was like i saw night gallery and just didn't know what it was and ignored it or just never watched it like i you, you, like you're saying you, you're like oh derek you know you love twilight zone i think you, you would have heard about this before then and maybe i did hear about it but i guess it was just something that was sort of you know it, it kind of reminds me of how i feel about like the 73 super Friends series it's like i love Super Friends, I love superpowers, but I wasn't really born or alive when the 73 series was on. So that was like, that was one of the series that I knew the least about until I watched it on DVD. You know, even even when they started re-airing stuff on like Cartoon Network or Boomerang, the stuff I was all super excited about when I saw it was, you know, oh shit, you know, the Legion of Doom, oh shit, you know, Firestorm. You know, like that's what I was like, dude, mom, dad, I know I'm at college, but can you record this for me? Like when it comes on, like, please like that, that was like how I was about that. So it's like, I, I guess I just didn't have any, any connection to, to, to night gallery in that way. Like, I don't know if it just escaped my notice or I just, I just sort of mentally blocked it as like, Oh, I will watch Star Trek and Twilight Zone and Freddy's nightmares. But what's this night gallery thing? No, I'm going to turn to the channel and watch like monsters or tales from the dark side instead, or something that I knew, you know, like, I'm not really sure about that. Well, I mean, even the title, like, uh, you know, a lot of the shows, like you said, you know, like Monsters, you know, you kind of get the gist of it. Night Gallery, it does sound kind of creepy, or it could be like, you know, an hour-long show of like, you know, here, the wonderful blood is here. I'm going to go through a, a visual sightseeing of all the famous artwork, you know. It could be something really dry and boring that you, you wouldn't know if you didn't know Rod Serling was involved with it, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, I guess I could see that, too. 11 hours of 12, fewer or more, it makes no difference. I want to see something. Trees, concrete, buildings, grass, airplanes, color! So I guess we'll I guess we'll move on to doing a, the short synopsis of the second story and discussing that. In the second story, titled Eyes, a wealthy woman, Miss Claudia Menlo, played by Joan Crawford, 
has been blind from birth, and she blackmails a specialist surgeon and a man who desperately needs money to buy herself 12 hours of sight, intending to make every second count if the operation works. So that's the the very short synopsis of what's going on here. And this was the point where, you know, Tony had, had said he left surprises for me and everything. And and this was something I didn't know about. And I was like, oh, holy shit, this was directed by Steven Spielberg. You know, and apparently <laughs> this was like, this was like one of his earliest, his first, uh, uh, what would you call it? His first professional directing job. Directorial effort. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I was thinking of things like Duel, you know, like his earliest movie, you know, like, but, but this was like something, you know, TV level. And I was kind of like, oh, that's, that's very interesting. Like I, I had no idea. And, and so that was kind of interesting. And then, and I think I read some stuff like they, they were talking about how, you know, Joan Crawford was like a big name, you know, she was a big star and how she didn't exactly think Steven Spielberg was hot shit. And she was on the, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's like the whole hindsight is twenty twenty, but she obviously had a lot yeah. more clout than he did at that time. And she probably used that to, to her advantage as opposed to the other way around where you're like, oh, look, look at what's, you know, what's come since then. Like how ironic, you know, and you can sit back and chuckle to yourself or whatever about that. But I mean, I this one, this one I thought had a, a nice twist to it. Um, I it's weird. I, I guess I was I was telling Tony about this uh, when when we were talking about it the other day. But the the way the story goes is basically she blackmails this doctor. She she's a blind woman and she really wants sight. And the idea is that she's going to get eyes from a person who's so destitute he desperately needs nine thousand dollars because he's got to pay off his bookies because he's like this kind of scummy gambler type character who can't, you know, he's addicted and he can't stop gambling. So rather than, than die, you know, rather than get, get, you know, killed over his debt, you know, he's going to sacrifice his eyes. And of course the doctor at first, you know, it's just like everybody else, like what we were talking about, like everybody has a price, I guess. And, and so, you know, uh, originally, you know, the, the lady Menlo is like, well, you know, I'll, I'll pay your price, like whatever it is. And the doctor's kind of like, well, I can speak for myself and all doctors. Like we, we have taken an oath, like we will not do this. You know, I will not sacrifice someone's eyes just to give you 12 hours of sight. You, good day, ma'am. Good day. You know, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, why don't you take a look at this? And then she hands him a dossier of all this PI work she's had done on him. And so she knows that he's been having an illicit affair. She knows that that, that, that the woman she had the affair with was, was younger than his wife and was impregnated and that he sent her to get an abortion. And so basically, like, there's all this damning evidence where it's like he's a he's supposed to be this prominent surgeon, but yet he, he, he went and had this lady go and get an illegal abortion and she was, you know, killed over it. And, and, you know, and basically like if any of that stuff came out, his career would be ruined. His marriage would be ruined. His life would be, you know, his life as he knows it now would be over with. So of course he agrees to, to do the, the operation. And then, you know, basically the, 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 you know, the, the operation takes place and then he's warning her about taking it slow and, you know, 
become yeah, accustomed to light and everything. Of course, she seems a, a bit impatient and everything, and she kind of rips the the blinds off and 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 starts looking at a light, and she's like, "Oh, it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful." And then all of a sudden, it, it blacks out immediately, and she's like, "You quack, you son of a bitch! I hate you!" You know, <laughs> she's all mad and everything. And the twist, which which I thought, where's my coat hangers? <laughs> the, the, the the twist, which I thought was great, is then they cut to the rest of the city, who was also engulfed in darkness, and it turns out there was a big black out in the entire city and everything is turned off so it's not it's just she doesn't realize that there's a blackout because she's never really experienced a blackout with sight and so the blackout lasts all night and and i thought like th- this is i guess my point was when i was explaining it to tony i kind of thought that was like good enough like that that was uh, kind of when that moment happened i was like <laughs> fuck you, stupid rich lady, fuck you, <laughs> you know, and I thought that was the end of the movie, you know, like, or the end of the story, like, that was the, the twist and the punch, and that was it, and then it kind of goes on for a little bit more, where, like, she, she finally, the morning comes, and she can actually see the sun, and she's like, oh, the sun's so golden, the sun's so beautiful, and blah, 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 and then, of course, you know, the eyesight goes out, because it's been, you know, 12 hours, you know, were wasted, you know, in the middle of the night, and all that kind of stuff, and then she like i don't know pounds on the glass and you know it's this cheap 70s way it reminded me of conquest of the planet of the apes when ricardo Montalban gets like thrown out the building it's this cheap way of <laughs> showing that somebody's fallen to their death without actually shooting them falling to their death and and then it ends and i was kind of like yeah not only is that cheap but i was just like you didn't need that ending like and part of me wonders if that was part of the the conflict between Crawford and Spielberg like I I wonder if Spielberg was like dude just end it right there where there's a blackout and and the star is kind of like but I'm a star it must end with me and I must have this glorious death and add this extra scene you know or whatever like I don't know it's just speculation on my part but I kind of felt like that ending sequence wasn't needed at all and then the other thing I wanted to talk about which which I don't know if you guys noticed or not but the guy who was addicted to gambling that that they take the eyes from and everything i'm all it's mr c you know from happy days or whatever so. yeah i thought that was i thought that was uh uh tom bosley yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah I, was like, I was like holy crap i was like oh yeah 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 because i was i was sitting there like i i don't know what it is but like that made me feel extra sorry for him because it's like when they first described <laughs> when, when they first described the the person who was going to donate the eyes you know joan Crawford's like oh it's some some degenerate that I'm getting the eyes from. And I kind of thought to myself, Oh, it's probably like some criminal or some, you know, some nasty guy, like, like that you wouldn't really feel sorry for. And then, and then they kind of show you like, he's just, you know, he's addicted to gambling and, and, and then it's Tom Bosley and you're just kind of like, Oh, Mr. C like what happened? (laughs) You know, it's like Mr. C got like, you know, (laughs) crazed and ran off away from happy days and was like gambling all his savings away and everything. And like, so I, I I don't know I kind of felt bad for him like he he delivers a it was like, good kind of oh yeah, yeah aw shucks yeah. kind of performance where he's like what's gonna happen to me after I don't see doc you know and my and and he even he even goes as far to say like you know like he he's like I'll probably be fine but I'll probably also slit my throat like two minutes later you know and you're just kinda <laughs> like oh, Jesus wow. Christ like wow you know so like yeah I I I really was uh sort of taken with with him you know like i i i wouldn't say i'm normally a person that feels bad or sorry for people all the time you know in certain contexts but there i was kind of like oh man like you you can't 
you know, yeah, I'll admit it. I'm like, my heart bled a little bit. You know, it was like he's I, got I felt... such a he's got such a like hound dog face anyway that like when he's all when he plays like a depressed person, it's like yeah, it's like doubly effective. <laughs> it's like Harry looks sad now. He is sad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind of funny, but yeah, yeah. What did you What did you guys think? Like, I mean, were you? Were you into this story? I know, I know. Mike said the cemetery was his favorite story. I mean, would you would you rank the story as still high? Like, do you do you think it suffers the the pangs of being a you know? It's like oh, a first time director is Spielberg. It's not as good as obviously you know. You're like it's you're like it's no Jaws, you know, like type thing. But. <laughs> I I mean, it was okay. It was in, interesting. I like. I kind of already guessed like the twist or like the main like conceit of it like pretty early on where I, where I was like oh the lights probably just went out and that she thinks she's blind but she's not actually and, like that that's how it turned out pretty much I I don't like like you were saying like maybe there was some conflict between Crawford and Spielberg and I get like I I was kind of like being as this is probably like Spielberg's like earliest pro like directing job I was kind of like this is awfully like kind of like uh, flashy and like I don't I don't know like it seems like like things like a first time director would do like weird like uh, weird imagery and sort of stuff like that and uh, I I don't know like how much of that was Spielberg and how much of that like you said might have been like Crawford saying oh I want this other scene and whatnot but I don't know it, it was interesting it just didn't really like I don't know there was no like like moment where I was afraid or or like unsettled or anything. Right. It was just right. it, it kind of felt like a Twilight Zone episode actually, yeah, yeah. Like where it was supposed to make you think rather than like horrify you or whatever. Well, the the whole unbandaging sequence reminded me a lot of the Eye of the Beholder, you know, where where it's like the the lady unbandages her face and of course she's beautiful and everybody else has the piggy faces and everything. Like that's that's kind yeah. of what that reminded me of. I mean, I don't know if that's supposed to be like some this this was supposed to be some kind of love letter to that in in a weird twisted way you know but I, I i did get that vibe while i was watching it that it was, it was trying to sort of uh, pay homage to maybe you know the the whole unbandaging sequence like it, it seemed very very similar um i i i guess like <clears throat> i can see that i guess one of the things that kind of this was not a bad episode at all i mean it was, it was a fine story as far as the idea and everything and yes, you know, Tom Bosley, he, he is actually very sympathetic. You you do feel bad for the poor schlub. And even the doctor, you know, it was like, the doctor fucked up, you know, in the past. He made a bad choice. But, like, he, he tried to do the right thing with this, and he's just, you know, kind of put in a rock in a hard place. So, like, all those are good actors. I think my biggest problem is, is, like, Joan Crawford is a great actress. She's legendary. Everybody knows that. But, my God, this was she was just chewing scenery left and right in this damn thing. She was just, you know... Yeah, this felt like this felt like to me like I know a lot of people have discussions about like comic book artists and how like, you know, even though they're regarded as, you know, they're heralded as superstars, they're heralded as as greats, you know, throughout the course of history. You know, there 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 are those points where people like to point to and go, you know what? You know, Jim Paparo was kick ass. Like he drew a great Batman. Like he drew a great Aquaman. He had great runs on Brave and the Bold and and all these other titles. But there there are certain people who like to point to the points where it's like, oh, well, here in the '90s when he's drawing Azrael, he can't be bothered to draw the Joe Quesada outfit, and he draws this like shitastic like Azrael outfit with a big A on his chest. And and you're like, oh, this is the point where 
you know, maybe Jim Aparo lost his step, you know, like maybe it's like yeah. he, he was a great, but, you know, maybe he, he overstayed his welcome or how, however you want to phrase it. It's not like an insult. It doesn't mean that he wasn't great. It just means that maybe this this was an example of his his work when he was past his prime. And I, I think this is an example of Joan Crawford's <laughs> work when yeah. she was past her prime. You know, like it just it wasn't it, it's not going to be, you know, Joan Crawford in in her prime going you know this would be a good death it's like you know uh, dark knight returns joan crawford going god damn it ah, you know or whatever you know so. yeah she's very screaming uh, and yelling and i know she's not supposed to be a likable character but i was just like damn you're you're like you know like it it, it reminds me of like that uh you know that old thing you know it's like i'm ready for my close-up mr deville like she's like I'm going to make this story work. And it's like, <laughs> I, like I, I told my dad, I was watching this and I was like, Oh, uh, Joan Crawford is in like the second story. And he was like, Joan Crawford. He was like, what year was that? And he was like, I thought she was like dead by then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, it's like horrible. You're like, well, she might as well be. <laughs> like, what's the heck you know? I was like, her, her acting <laughs> Uh, yeah. Send all angry emails if you're a huge fan of Joan Crawford too. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh my god, guys, the painting on my wall is changing. The ears of Joan Crawford are coming up out, knocking on my door. What a boy! Save me. Um, no, yeah, uh, actually, yeah, what Derek had talked about earlier, me and talked about this uh, story uh, a day or two ago. Yeah, uh, like, the, like, well, you, we just mentioned the graveyard. The the tactile part with Hortifoy and the artist and stuff that made that made it better that made it like even more you know twisty and fun. The added tactile part of this just it seemed yeah like a waste you know she's like and and she she does I mean, again the overactive she does like the sun I could see the sun and then it like goes black she's like twelve hours twelve hours. No, I want it back. It's like oh my god, woman. You know. I I, I think maybe the problem is that that you identified more with the people she hurt than that character, even though yeah, exactly. maybe the intent is that, I mean, she's supposed to be the star, you know? So, so I, I, I mean, I think that's that weird tightrope of some of these anthology things. And, and you can have a person who is not a good person be the protagonist and you can still tell a story in a way where you effectively relate to that person. But I, I don't think this particular segment was very successful in doing that i think you, you you know i think tom bosley and like you said you know the the doctor the lawyer even even the lawyer in the short scene that he's like she got you too huh you know like even yeah. that guy like e even that one line like you felt bad for him more than you felt for her because you're like look look at the 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 manipulation the webs that this woman has weaved just to to get her own personal satisfaction so so you, you it, it's a tough it's a tough sell to have that scene i think i think to me like that that's why my reaction when when the lights blacked out went <laughs> stupid bitch fuck you yeah. you know like like you you that was your catharsis and that's all you needed like you didn't need that extra scene because you didn't care about that character in that same way and 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 you just felt like oh now she's got her just dessert you know and 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 then you know that added scene just seemed to me to be I, I mean, I know it's all speculation on my half because I don't know any of the details, but I mean, it really does feel like the ego maniacal nature of, of uh, an actress who was like, 
I need this scene and I, I would like to do this and blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't really fit the overall narrative. Yeah. It just, yeah, it's like too much, you know, just too much. That's really, yeah, all you could say about it. There is, there is a God. Let him show himself now. Get me to the picture. I must get into the picture. Anyone, get me into the picture. On I must get into the picture. <laughs> All right, so I think that that kind of wraps up our our notions on Eyes, which was the Steven Spielberg directed portion of Night Gallery Pilot, and we will go ahead and move on to the third and final story, which is titled The Escape Route. In the escape route, a fugitive Nazi war criminal, played by Richard Kiley, is hiding from the authorities in South America. There, he is tormented by his past demons and finds his only solace in a serene museum painting of a fisherman on a lake. He desperately wants nothing more than to escape into the world of this painting and abandon his life on the run, but merely begins a new phase of torment. So that is the, the short and sweet synopsis for the escape route. I kept thinking Magneto was going to bust down the door any moment and come after <laughs> this guy. Uh, you know, it, I, I, I guess it's, I don't know, like to me it seems like now it's like, I, I imagine it must be real because they always bring it up in things where Nazi war criminals fleeing to South America. I imagine there must be some kind of historical context for that constantly appearing. Yeah, in, in it's, I think it's where, where they find all of them basically. <laughs> Yeah, so so I mean I imagine there's some historical context to it, but it, but it also seems kind of like a Hollywood stereotype, like where do where do dead Nazis go when they die? You know, and it's like they go to South America. So I I was kind of just thinking like it, 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 maybe it's stereotypical, but it's also it, it probably has a lot of truth to it as well. But this is this is where that that character is. I I thought it was kind of convenient that there was also a a companion, a lady of the night who is living across from our, our lead protagonist character. And she also happens to be German and speak his language. So they, they have like these kind of conversations and everything. And she seems to be a little more forgiving of him than I think people would be today. You know, like, like I, 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 yeah. I think it's, it's interesting that, that he is the protagonist here because, you know, there, there, I think, this is a good example, I think, as opposed to the, the previous story, Eyes, where obviously you know the person's responsible for some horrible, horrible things, but you also get to see he's tormented by all those things and, you know, all the guilt that he is racked with. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's comparable, but but I'm sure there are people that are racked with guilt in their own life. So it's not so much that you relate to like a Nazi war criminal. It's not like you're like, Oh yeah, me and genocide. We're like this. And I cross my fingers together <laughs> on an audio podcast. But, but I, I think it's the idea of everybody's felt guilty about something. Everybody's, you know, possibly been tormented by some decisions they've made or some life choices that they've made. So going on the strength of that, that's, that's probably where we're, you and this character have something in common. You know, he's on the run. He's he's away from his home. You know, he's he's sort of never going to be in a familiar setting again. And and I think there's 
times where you have been in an unfamiliar setting and you're desperate to get home or find solace or escape or, you know, whatever is plaguing you at any given moment. You're like, oh, I wish I could just escape. I wish I could transport myself into this painting. You know, it's like it's you know, it's why people read comics. It's why people watch movies. It's escapism. You're like, oh, I like the Silver Surfer. Why do I like the Silver Surfer? Because I used to like to look up into the stars and imagine I was like on a surfboard and I could like fly away and, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think in that context, it's like, yeah, what this character did is not a nice thing. It's not a good thing. Like nobody is justifying it or or making apologies for it but they do follow this character and and you can relate to the idea of somebody desperately wanting to escape from the life they've you know the lot they've created for themselves and and that's what this story basically is about you know that that he wants to find escape and of course <clears throat> being that this is night gallery he does not find escape <laughs> I, no, I guess he's not really like a like much like Miss Crawford. He's not really a sympathetic protagonist. I mean, he's not, but also at the same time, I think he the actor does a bit bit better job of making him at least be more personable. Because like, yes, he's a Nazi. Yes, we know Nazis are bad. We 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 are aware of this. But at the same time, you know, on the other hand, you know. He does have, you know, remorse and regret at least, because like, like Joan Crawford, she was just like, take their eyes. He's a, he's a piece of shit. Doctor, you'll do as I say. Yeah, she's, off with their heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's know. she's very unapologetic. <laughs> whereas he, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's some rationalizations he's made just to keep going. Obviously, you know, he yeah. probably doesn't deserve to keep going, but he's made these rationalizations in his head where he's like, I wasn't so bad. Like other people did the really bad stuff. It wasn't me. You know, so you've got that kind of, I was just following orders type bullshit. I was, you know? I was one of the good Nazis. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And and you're just kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever, dude. But, but you know, it, it's it's one of those things where you 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 see him on the run from somebody. And, and I think, I think it's like, it doesn't matter in the context of, of the story. It's like, you could play the same sequence in a Bourne identity movie. The difference is, you know, Jason Bourne is like the good guy, but Jason Bourne could still be on a bus and see that a car is following him and get kind of like the shakes and the nerves and be like, wait, this guy's following me. Wait, at the next turn, I'm going to get off the bus stop. Uh, and the next stop, I'm going to hide in the museum and then they're going to bypass me. And it's like, it's the same kind of, spy espionage cops and robbers on the run vibe that you can follow as an audience member and and still you know it's like you know the 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 morals and the the sort of you know undercurrent of the story is different but but the 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 surface level it's just a guy running away from some other guys and that's fairly easy as an audience member to follow you know like you can follow along with that and and kind of see yeah. you know so. Well, I, I think with like Joan Crawford, like you know her character uh, Menlo, not Joan Crawford herself, the character that she was playing, is <clears throat> like when she gets her come up, it's you know it's more of a like you know yeah take that bitch. Whereas this guy, when he gets his come up, it's you're not like sad. He's a Nazi, you know. He he, he kind of brought it on himself, definitely. You know, he, he did some horrible things, but you're also not like yeah take that you asshole. You're just like hey, you got what you deserve, man. You know that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, we, I guess we can go into the the ultimate twist, but the the whole time he keeps coming back to this museum and he sees a painting of a guy fishing on a lake, and then he keeps seeing his own face within that portrait, and it, it basically you get the idea he desperately wants to just be on that lake fishing for the rest of his life. He wants to be free of of all these pains and torments and and all this kind of stuff. And and for some reason, because Night Gallery deals with like the supernatural, you, you start to get the idea if he concentrates on that painting long enough and hard enough, he will actually be transported into the world of the painting. And so when they finally catch up to him, like I, I thought that scene where like, I, I don't know why, like I thought it was pretty badass when like the Nazi hunter shows up and he's kind of like, Shalom. You know, he's like, I'm going to fucking, you know, like, and, and, and like, I thought that was pretty cool. And um, um, so, the, you know, the, the Nazi hunters find him and everything. And then, of course, now he's like, you know, basically he's caught and he's freaked out. And that's where he kind of loses it. He's like, it wasn't me. I can give you the other guy. He's like, don't don't get me like it, it wasn't me. Like I was just following orders. And he's like running away and everything. And so he desperately runs back into the museum. But at this point, the museum's closed and it's dark and everything. And so he's 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 at the same spot where he knows that fisherman painting is. And he's basically pleading like, dear God, like, please put me in this painting. Put me in the painting, whatever you do. I don't want to be here anymore. And then the lights come up. He's gone. And you're kind of thinking, oh, well, what happened? Like, and the twist is, you know, you see these, you know, South American uh, museum uh, curators, you know, come up at everything. It's like the security guard and probably like the main guy who owns the museum and everything. It's kind of like, oh, you know, isn't it interesting that they had to move the fisherman painting to another location and they moved this other painting and and I guess they had set it up earlier where he runs into a Holocaust survivor in the museum. And the Holocaust survivor is looking at this one painting where it's uh, basically a Jew who's crucified. And, and, and it's just this horrible, horrible image of, of, you know, the atrocities. It's supposed to be representative of the entire Holocaust, but like in a single image, you know, like like basically just representing that entire circumstance perpetrated onto one human being and so you find out the twist is that that painting got moved into the place of the fisherman painting and so when the lights come up it's like that guy's face you know it, it's the actor yeah. it's it's richard kiley's face that's now imposed on that that crucifix uh, i'm all crucifix victim you know in, in the painting and everything and you see like the look on his face is just like Aah! You know, and he's going to be like that for the rest of his life and everything. And you're just like, bum, bum, bum. You know, like that's the yeah. the big shocker twist ending of it and everything like that. And it, and it's weird. Like, I, I, you kind of you kind of feel of, I don't know, for me, I, I felt of two minds about it. I mean, in some sense, you're like, oh, that's, you know, you could easily sit there and kind of go, well, that's perfectly justified. Like, you got what was coming to him. And then at the same time, since you spent like an hour with the guy and, and you know, you know, he, he's got a certain level of remorse about what had happened and then you kind of feel like is that you know it does he deserve that or not you know like like so i i don't know to me i was like i i felt both ways about it where it's like i i could see like you know like i said i liked when the nazi hunters found him and the guy's like shalom you know and i thought that was pretty cool but then it's like what would they have done with him they probably would have put him on trial and eventually executed him like that that's what i would think would happen um yeah. but but i mean it's like execution versus a lifelong torment, you know, like, whereas I don't know, maybe if you do execute him and you believe in the afterlife, like maybe he goes to hell forever and is eternally tormented anyway, you know? So it's like maybe either way he, he would get something like uh, what was akin to what happened to him in the painting. But, but I guess that's a more 
for the purposes of the story, it's it's a more immediate and cathartic resolution for anybody who who needs that catharsis. I think. Yeah, I I think the thing I took away from this is like, um, you know, when you're praying to God, you might want to rethink about it when you killed a bunch of his people because I think you forgot God was Jewish. Anyway, um, anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <it's> like whoops, <laughs> prayed to the wrong guy. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, yeah, it was definitely a twisty ending. Um, and I thought it was – I hate to say this because this may reflect badly on me, but I thought it was kind of a darkly humorous ending. It was like very dark humor because it was like, you know, I'm gonna, I want to be in this painting, this really serene thing. And then like he goes to the exact opposite. You know, he goes to like – Well, it's probably, it's probably like a sense of irony, if anything else. And you can, you can certainly chuckle at irony. Like, I mean, for me, like I was more laughing at – the irony of of Joan Crawford, you know, with the, the the eyes and everything. Like I thought that was that was a point where I laughed. But but I, I you you could apply that to both these stories, I think, because like we say, the the protagonists are not really nice people. So so there's that sense of of you know humor to to what their fates, even though even though their fates are ghastly and abhorrent. It, 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 I, I guess it. it I suppose if you really liked the character, you you couldn't have that ironic chuckle, you know, like like the the the, the fact that the protagonists are unlikable, give you that freedom to to chuckle about something that is morbid and and ghastly. I thought yeah. I don't I thought it was a little like overdone compared to the other two. Like I I think like the cemetery was like just the right amount of like subtlety, and then like the what do you call it? the the second one was like too subtle and then this one was just like over the top like almost like i was like oh okay whatever like i, I was kind of like <laughs> like the painting at the end where he was like oh like i was like okay well it's not quite it's it's not quite as scary as like the the sketchy paintings from the cemetery basically but yeah, i mean I get, it was I still it. like a horrific image but it, it was more like like it's kind of like having like too much sugar. Like it's it's too like saccharine. Like like but in a horror sense almost. Like yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I, yeah, I yeah. they they don't they don't leave much to the imagination in that one. Yeah, yeah. And like this, what happens? Yeah, he he he, he not happy. He you know, he probably did. No. Um. And I mean, like it's it also like adding to that. I mean, it's a Nazi. I mean, like they're they're basically like the ultimate like bad guy, basically in anything. Like you, you, no one cares what happens to a Nazi usually. Like in, in any kind of fiction, like you, you, whenever they get like hurt, it's like you know, like yeah, they deserve that. So I mean, it's it's it's, it's low hanging fruit, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I give him credit for trying to do that. The the, the writer or director who ever came up with the, the story. Like I give them, I give them, you know, props for like trying to make, you know, unlikable archetype, somewhat likable. I mean, you know, they did try, but yeah, I mean, it's the Nazi, you know. It's like, you know, it'd be like if he had a sitcom about Satan and he was like a good dad, you know, he'd just be like, I don't really buy this. <laughs> well, like, I mean, I, I mean, I think it's interesting though because you, you can demonize an action or you can demonize a person. So it's like, okay, it, yeah, yeah, you, you, you can sit there and, and tell me until I'm blue in the face, is torture wrong? And I'll have different opinions on it than you do. But ultimately, this guy is tortured for the rest of his life. So if you're going to sit there and tell me you don't believe in torture, 
that's fine. I that's your opinion, and I'll respect that. But then, if you tell me that that you think that the Nazi deserves to be tortured for the rest of his life, and you don't believe in torture, then that's the point where my mind kind of has that schism of, well, wait, which is it? You know, like w- which one? You you know what I mean? Like I'm fine if you think that he deserves what he gets, because I think a lot of us would think that. But then, you know, there's that part of me that I always have that that schism where I'm like sitting there going, but wait a minute, like it it should be, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe that's why, you know, I get to the point where I, I tend to think in terms of black and white a lot of the times in certain scenarios, because to me, it's either one or the other. You know, it's either either you think he did bad things and he deserves it or you don't believe in torture. So then nobody should be tortured. You know, so it's like it's, it's like if you're going to tell me one or the other, then then I would think people who tell me that they don't believe in torture probably should find this ending abhorrent no matter what the person did, if that makes any sense. But but if you're sitting there going, well, you know what? In some cases, I think torture is justified. And if you come from that approach to it, then the ending you're you're to me, I feel like you're you're legitimately, you know, uh, you, you have a legitimate feeling at the end where you're like, oh, you know, he was a Nazi man like that's you know, you, you reap what you sow, you know, and, and, and so you're like, okay, well, then then that I can understand that feeling as well. You know, what, what I can understand is when somebody says, man, you reap what you sow. And then, you know, the next day there's something about, you know, oh, well, Jack Bauer tortured this guy. Man, Jack Bauer's a douchebag. Like, he tortures people. <laughs> he should be put in jail. And you're just like, but wait a minute. You just told me that the Nazi deserved it. So it's like, what's the difference? You know, like, like well, you know, that that's kind of my my gut reaction to those kind of things. I, I, th- I think it's like the, the clear line is, is what is justice and what is revenge? You know, like, was this like more of a vengeance of, you know, God thing, or was this actual justice? Personally, I mean, this is just me. I would rather, you know, like he go on trial and if he gets sentenced to death, so be it, you know, but like this, yeah, I mean, you know, is it is it justified for like him to be tormented throughout eternity? I don't know. I don't. I don't get to make that decision. That's not for me to decide. But you know that is kind of harsh. That is like you know like damn you know like you know like what if he had actually been like you know just following orders doesn't excuse his actions but like you know just just put him to death you know because like can you, I mean like you said imagine being tormented for the entire like rest of eternity like you know throughout the like ages i think I, I think there's a lot of uh like uh i don't know wiggle room but th- what what there isn't wiggle room for basically like there's wiggle yeah. room in terms of his punishment but what there isn't wiggle room for is the fact that he is actually like a, a bad person like, yeah, yeah not only like yeah, yeah, really right. told the extent of his crimes but he murders like that old man basically so yeah. clearly like he he was bad so yeah, I mean, yeah. it's not like he was just following orders. He wanted to kill them. So. Right, right, right. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just saying, like you know, it's like it depends on what you think of the punishment. But like, yeah, as far as whether he's a criminal or not, or if he's a bad person, no, yeah, that is that is not in that is not in debate. Yeah, he he deserves some kind of comeuppance. Definitely, it's just like you said, the wiggle room is how severe that come comeuppance is. He deserves some kind of uh, uh, you know, retribution for what he's done. I agree with that definitely. I did too. All right, so I, I think I think that kind of puts a cap on Night Gallery. 
I'm, I am super glad that Tony mentioned this. And, and like Mike said, I, I will certainly check out more of these. I know uh, other than this pilot that we've discussed with the uh, three short stories, there are pretty much the entire three seasons are up there on Hulu for free. So if you don't mind sitting through about four billion fucking commercials, you can totally check that out for <laughs> free on Hulu. I know that Night Gallery is also on DVD as well. So we can put some of those down there on the spindle. There's three seasons. And hopefully you've enjoyed listening to this. If you've never heard of Night Gallery, and if you're a huge big fan of Night Gallery, hopefully you got a tickle out of me and Mike's first take on Night Gallery and and Tony's suggestion of Night Gallery. So I guess what we're going to do here is we're going to take a little break. We're going to play a nice little commercial snippet for another awesome podcast. And then when we come back, we're going to be discussing... The Creature from the Black Lagoon adaptation by Art Adams. So stay tuned. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to do it. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it will be used to you at a particular and then if you go out of that, it scrambles to a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It really doesn't work well. So I checked. Right. Uh, I checked my. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, my. Pro- okay. It definitely built build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join back to the bins every week for goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. Welcome back, folks. So we are back now in our second half of the Fanholes Fright Fest, and we are here to talk the nitty gritty about the Creature of the Black Lagoon special from Dark Horse Comics. Many years ago, I heard this legend on the river. A very old native tell me of a man who lived underwater. But she was crazy. Crazy ghoulie, everybody called her. <laughs> the unknown always seems unbelievable, Lucas. Well, one accepts these things as legend and lets it go at that. But to actually believe that there exists something like a human being that can live underwater. Now, this is no legend, as you'll soon see for yourself. So this was a special that was done by Art Adams in 1993. Obviously, it has wonderful, awesome art, and it is an adaption of the original film. So just in case anybody hasn't seen the original film, I'm just going to read out a small little synopsis, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty discussing the comic book itself. The synopsis is as follows. A scientific expedition searching for fossils along the Amazon River discovers a prehistoric gill man in the legendary Black Lagoon. A group of scientists try to capture the animal and bring it back to civilization for study. Although the explorers capture the mysterious creature, it breaks free and returns to kidnap the lovely Kay, fiancé of the lead expeditioner, Dr. David Reed. So that's basically the the long and short of The Creature of the Black Lagoon, if nobody's seen it. This was released, the adaptation, in 1993. It was penciled by Art Adams. It was inked by Terry Austin. Basically, Steve Monacus has a writer's credit. And when I was first reading this, I was noticing, and it's really no secret, I mean, it is a word-for-word 
almost shot-for-shot adaptation of The Creature of the Black Lagoon as interpreted by Art Adams. So I was sitting there going, oh, I wonder if Steve Monacuse is the, Monacuse is the, you know, screenplay writer for the original Creature of the Black Lagoon. And then when I looked it up, I'm like, he's not the screenplay writer. So I'm like, why didn't they credit the screenplay writers? So I was kind of confused. And then I realized Steve Monkus actually is kind of famous for the comic book series Fish Police, which got its own animated series. And he, he's written some other comics. Like, I think he's written stuff for, like, Star Trek Voyager. And, and I, I mean, I can look up real quick. It's like Fish Police, uh, some of these other Universal Monsters titles. And then you've got things like Godzilla and X-Factor and Star Trek The Early Voyages and so on and so forth. So so he's done a number of, of comic books for Dark Horse and Marvel. And so I was thinking, like, well, why does he have credit for it? And then I remembered there was a Modern Masters that dealt with Art Adams. It's like one of those cool, big, magazine-sized art books that have articles and black and white images from, from the creator's portfolios and all this kind of stuff. And so I was rereading that, and what I noticed was that Art Adams basically said, like, hey, this was in the age where we didn't have DVDs. We couldn't just walk into like a Barnes and Nobles and be like, hey, can I get the script for the creature of the Black Lagoon? And somebody's like, here you go. Here's a script of like all the Universal Monster movies or whatever. And I imagine you probably could find a script, but it was probably like one of those things where it was on the convention circuit back in the day where you, you know, buy a script full of purple pages. And it's like Batman 89 script or, you know, whatever people wanted scripts for. And. So yeah, I just guess, wasn't read, readily available, yeah. Yeah, so I, I guess he was saying, you know, he didn't have access to the script. So rather than go through the VHS tape and watch it a gabillion times himself and transcribe it, it seems like Art Adams basically, you know, bamboozled Monacuse into watching the movie a gabillion times and transcribing all the lines. So based on that, he that's how he wound up with writer's credit because he was the one who actually went through the, the probably the VHS tape of Creature of the Black Lagoon and transcribed all the dialogue for Art Adams. Yeah. So I guess just just to open it up, I mean, I've got a few points and thoughts that, that I wanted to get into regarding the adaptation. But I'm just kind of curious what you guys thought. I mean, obviously, I really love Art Adams. I've met the guy a couple times. He's signed a bunch of things for me. I think he's a great and nice guy. And, of course, I, I really do dig his art. I was just curious what your guys' take on this adaptation was, because obviously it's a very famous and, and well-known movie monster as well. So I'm sure there are people who, you know, maybe don't know who Art Adams is, but they certainly have a conception of the creature of the Black Lagoon. Yeah, um, I remember actually, uh, if we want to get some history, uh, again, when I was very young, I remember there was a big thing um, where in the early 80s, mid-80s, uh, 3D TV like movies were a big thing. You would you would go to the gas station and you know get a get a popcorn or whatever, and they would give you a, a free uh, set of uh, 3D glasses. And then they would they would promote it, and then like you know on the Saturday afternoon matinee, you could watch whatever horror, usually a horror movie, and you could watch it in 3D. And one of the big ones that they were plugging. Uh, one of those uh, times was the creature from the Black Lagoon. You know, it says in 3D. You know, and um, you know, even then I still remember like you know the the music thing. You know, the dun 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 dun. You know, and the uh, the the guy swimming around in the suit and stuff. And um, it, it's kind of funny because 
a lot of the Universal monsters, by today's standards, they get they get kind of picked on a little bit because you know like Dracula, Frankenstein, and and even the Wolfman, even though that wasn't definitely not bad makeup for the time, they seem a little dated. You know, they seem like guys in masks. Whereas the Gilman suit. I think he even today holds up pretty good. It looks really creepy, you know. He's yeah, like I, a fucking fish guy. Yeah, I, I I love the creature of the Black Lagoon. I mean, I, I really do love all the Universal monsters. Like what what I did in preparation for this was I busted out my Universal Classic Monsters: The Essential Collection Blu-ray, and it's funny that you bring up the 3D aspect because I guess technically now, like I do have a 3D TV, so I could have turned on the 3d function and and watched it in 3d but i i just watched it in 2d because i'm not i don't know i'm not i'm not all crazy on the 3d phase but but there are those scenes where you can tell like it's kind of like those those funny moments where like his hand comes through the little portal like they 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 always have those scenes where it's coming up out of the river like they had a lot of those shots where it focused on the hand so you had that sort of three-dimensional force perspective possibly to to freak people out like like the hand was going to come out of the screen and touch them or something like that. And then I think, I think one of my earliest introductions to the, the creature was the old three and three fourths Remco action figures. Like, I love those fucking things. Like, like there was the little play yeah. set with all the, the toys and everything like that. And I, I adored those. And I think the creature version of the one I had, I guess there was one that was just normal but the one I had was, I think, the follow-up one where they all had, like, glow-in-the-dark paint. Yeah. So if you, you know, yeah. if you put it in the sun and then you put them in the dark, like, the entire... Like, I think with, like, Dracula, it was just, like, maybe his hands and his face or something. The Phantom of the Opera, yeah, like, his face would glow. Yeah, like, but, yeah but Frankenstein, the, too, like, his face, yeah. But, like, the creature and the mummy, it's, like, the whole damn body was, like, you know, it's, like, <laughs> super cool, glowy type stuff. So, I, I mean, that I loved. And, and it, it you know, obviously it was fun to rewatch the movie again on Blu-ray. And, and it's pretty fun to look at the the comic book adaptation. Because I, I think Art Adams' art is really, really great. I mean, as far as, like, the plot and the dialogue goes, I mean, it's it's pretty much a strict adaptation of what happens in the movie scene for scene. It, there, yeah. there is there is one sequence I think he cut probably just due to keep the 48 page count for Dark Horse. But in the beginning of the movie, there is a sequence where David Reed is first introduced to the the other archaeologist who's, who's coming back from the lagoon and they you meet Kay for the first time. So, you know how like it cuts straight from the the lagoon and the amazon to like a scene with like the fish in the tank and then they're all yeah, gathered yeah. around and that's where you're first introduced to like all the characters there's yeah, actually yeah. in the in the movie there's one sequence before that where you're basically introduced to the, the the main protagonist it's like look it's dr david reed and he's underwater and he's like doing archaeology shit and then he b- pops up out of the water and Kay and the other doctor are in the boat and it's like oh it's been so long since we've met and you should come out and do this. And, and you two kids, you should get married soon. And, and all this kind of stuff. Like there's that one sequence. And then they cut to the fish tank and introduce you to all the rest of the characters. But I mean, I guess he felt like, you know, Oh, if there was a scene he had to lose, that was probably the easiest scene to lose. Cause that other sequence kind of introduces you to all the characters anyway. So that's, that that's yeah. kind of the only sequence that I can see that was lost. I mean, in terms of pacing though, I, I, I think, I don't know. I guess it depends on how you read a comic and and how, you know, I think the movie 
itself dictates pacing. But but a comic book, I think you dictate the pacing in certain sense. Like like I think there's sequences where obviously in the film the underwater sequences were the main attraction. So I I was thinking like they they spend a lot of time lovingly on the underwater sequences in the film. You know, you 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 spend, you know, almost like 10 minutes on an underwater sequence, you know, watching the creatures swim around, watching these guys in their diving suits swim around and and it's it's kind of almost lovingly focused on whereas i think in the comic adaptation you know art adams could get away with spending like one or two panels on a scene that might take 10 minutes in the film so i mean if you if you if you're lovingly looking at that panel for 10 minutes then i guess the pace is the same but if you're like me you know i mean i i read comics pretty quickly and and you know although i love the art you know i i kind of go through them at a at a breakneck speed sometimes so so something that might take a couple panels i'll go through fairly quickly it might take me you know 20 seconds to look at something that takes 10 minutes in the film so i i mean i think that's an yeah. interesting thing to bring up i don't know uh, you know if, if that's something that you can speak to as well like how you paced yourself when you're reading the comic I think there was definitely a couple of times when I was going through it that I did kind of dwell on certain, you know, panels and stuff. Cause I was like, man, that is really gorgeous. You know, that is really good art. And maybe I did read a little bit slower, but um, yeah, I, I thought it was, is decently paced, you know, I, I mean, yeah, there are, you know, definitely panels where guys just swimming, you know, and, but they're so well drawn. And like, I was going to bring this up about our Adam style, a lot of people are familiar with his very stylized version of like Wolverine and, you know, his work on X-Men and stuff. And, you know, he's, he's well known for comics, but like, he also has like this really cool way of like kind of just tweaking his style just a little bit to where he just nails this kind of fifties era look, you know, like it, it, you know, it, I, I can't really explain it, but it's like, you know, it reminds me of like, you know, the uh, uh, Mars Attacks cards or the Dinosaurs Attacks cards where they're kind of pop culture but, you know, still it seems like it comes from that era. And this comic book, even though it is very detailed art and it's like, you know, his signature style, I could have seen this being released in like the 50s as like, you know, a really high end book or something, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I, I think it's an interesting exercise for the artist in terms of getting a you know 70 minute film compressed into this 48 page comic and and deciding how to focus on which details and and portions i mean i i think i i think the movie has the advantage of i i know you brought it up before and i think it plays a big role in the movie and it sort of is non-existent than in the comic, but that dun dun dun, you know, like music in the back every time like a <laughs> yeah. hand pops out of the water or you, or you see the creature on screen. It's yeah, like you uh, have to it, mentally fill that in. Yeah, because because you you can <laughs> sometimes not see or or not hear. I don't know how to explain it, but like sometimes like the panels of the creature, it's like they look really cool. But I, I don't know that I got the same sense of dread I would get when I watched the movie. It's like, you, you know he's there, but a, a lot of times in the movie you're like, turn around, you fools, turn around! Whereas in the comic book it's just kind of like, oh, look, it's a pretty picture of the creature. Like, that's pretty awesome. Like, I like that. Or I guess in terms of, like, I it's funny, I guess I'd call it, like, the quote-unquote acting of the comic book. 
Like, it, it's yeah. interesting because I think the acting in the movie is pretty subtle. Whereas I think the, the quote unquote acting in the comic book, like for instance, the, you know, the, there is kind of a, a, a love triangle, a love, I don't know, square. I don't know. Like, like <laughs> if you include the creature, but, but there is kind of this yeah. love triangle between David Reed. And then there's the guy who's basically funding the museum. His name's Mark. And like, like they, they, they're sort of like both strapping, good looking young men type thing, you know? And so they're both kind of like flexing their muscles for this girl, Kay, you know? And, and so th- there, there's that interesting notion of in, in the movie, it, it's a bit more subtle. You know, he, he, he kind of make comments and be like, oh, well, you know, uh, I think you better stop playing the housemate and come downstairs and look at this thing, you know, look at the, look at the fossil, you know, whereas in, in the comic, it's kind of like, stop playing house dude and come on down you know and like his face (laughs) would always look like overly evil and overly shadowed it's like he's supposed to be like sort of that corporate you know muckety muck guy that you're not exactly supposed to like but it's like it's the difference between he was kind of subtle and kind of likable a bit in the film even though he made bad decisions whereas i think in the comic book yeah. it was like he was like walter peck from ghostbusters you know where it's like yeah. he, he always had that nefarious look on his face or like an evil smile or he's like i can be the bait whereas like in in the <laughs> film he's kind of like mark don't you get it i can be the bait you know like like he is like the difference between like william shatner and the joker or something you know like I, I don't yeah know he's not in it but he's not nearly as slimy in the movie yeah I like. I also like like when when Kay gets into her bathing suit and goes swimming, and like you see the creature sees her from below. It's like the expression on the creature's face is like, "Whoa, she hot!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know the fish, but man, <laughs> Art, Art Adams does draw, draw draw a lovely a lovely bathing suit. So that's that's you know. Can't can't fault the creature for that. You, you know what I wanted to bring up too, and and I I don't know the character's name off the top of my head, but there, uh, in the expedition there is uh you know obviously we we talked about David Reed and we talked about the guy Mark, but there there's a couple other scientists that are on the expedition, and I will say this like Art Adams is not doing likenesses in this adaptation. He's not trying no, no, to, no. to replicate how the actors looked on screen. It's kind of his own way of drawing, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't want to say like a stock face, but it, it looks like a traditional Art Adams image of different characters. And, you know, occasionally I'd say maybe you, you could get Mark and David a bit confused depending on how, they colored the scenes, you know, because sometimes it's like there's yeah. a light flashing in the background or shadows. And it's like the, the, it's like kind of the main way you, you discern between Mark and David is, you know, David has brown hair and Mark has blonde hair. But then sometimes the way the light shines, it's like, wait, it, it kind of looks like he's got blonde hair. Is that Mark? And you realize, no, that's actually David. But the light shining on the brown hair made it a bit lighter because of the way the shadows were and all that kind of stuff. And, and I guess my, my point was, was that uh, in terms of the other scientists, I know it's not a likeness, but all I could think of was the one other scientist who joins them on the expedition. Art Adams drew him like Peter Cushing in star Wars. Like, I I don't know. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I was like, what's with, Okay, I, I looked up the guy's name. The the other doctor was Dr. Edwin Thompson. 
And so, like, and, and, and the actor who plays him, his name is Whit Bissell. I, I wouldn't say he looks like Peter Cushing, but when I read the comic book adaptation, if you've ever seen, like, Art Adams' covers of the original New Hope Star Wars or whatever, or, like, in those Star Wars Galaxy top cards, if you put, like, an image of Governor Moff Tarkin next to this doctor, this Dr. Edwin Thompson in the adaptation, you'd be like, what's Peter Cushing doing in the Black Lagoon? You know, like, so. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah, and I see that now that you said that. I was like, I don't know. I just, like, when I first saw it, I was like, huh, I guess I got some hollowing out cheeks there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it, well, I mean, that's the, that's the problem with a, a comic and a movie. It doesn't matter how good of an artist you are, which, of course, Art Adams is one of the masters. I mean, he really is. Like, you know, there is going to be something a little bit lost. You're talking, like, when you talk about the musical staying, I love Star Wars comics. I think that they're fun to read. But, but, like, sometimes when I'm reading them, you know, I, I do miss, like, you know, the, you know, or, like, the, the big, you know, anthem when they blow up something. And it's not the comic's fault. I mean, the comic can't do that. You can play music in the background if you want. But, I mean... You could do something lovingly, which obviously R. Adams loved that movie. He wanted to replicate it, and he wanted to, like, do a good job. And as a comic, it's good. But, yeah, there is something a little missing from the movie, you know? It's just, like, it can't be helped. It's just a transition of media, you know? It's like when you read a really good book, and then they make it into a movie, even if that's a great movie, it's still going to be missing something from the book, because the book is, like, you know, a thousand pages. And, like, a movie is only, like, at the most two and a half, three hours long, and that's, like, long for a movie, so... It's just it's uh, the trials and tribulations of adaptation. It's just how it goes. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not bad. But, you know, I, I still say I like the movie better. But as a comic, it's a good comic. I just, you know, and, you know it's like kind of one of those juxtapositions, I guess you would say. Yeah, I, I think it's very lovely. I mean, I, I think that's the primary draw is to see Art Adams draw the creature and, and see Art Adams do what he does you know speaking for myself too and i know i've brought this up a lot in terms of manga and it might be hypocritical of me not to mention this and and I, this is not a detractment of the original film but the original film is in black and white so i think one of the yeah. things that i i was drawn to in terms of this adaptation is it is in glorious color you know and and when you see the creature he's green and scaly and and creepy and everything and and when they go after him with the um what do you call it they they go after him with the why why am i having a brain fart the, the fucking puncture harpoons harpoons so yeah i couldn't even think of that when they when they go after him with the yeah, the air gun or whatever. Like spear, spear gun. Spear gun. Okay. So so when when they go after him with the spear gun, you know, and, and they they actually have a successful hit, you know, in the comic, it's like you can see all the blood, you know, flow in the water and everything. Whereas, you know, in the black and white thing, you know, number one, I don't think they were even trying to, you know, they they weren't even trying to use a facsimile of blood at that point. It's just it, the spear gun hit him, and then you see the creature kind of get annoyed, and he pulls it out. It's like, fucking stupid spear gun. Like, I mean, as far as you know, <laughs> the creature was, like, impervious and didn't actually bleed. But in this, like, it's kind of interesting because when it makes contact, you know, you see the, the stream of blood, like, flow up to the top of the pond and all that kind of stuff. And visually, you know, the color, you know, obviously spells that out for you. So I, I think that was a fun aspect 
of the adaptation that is is very different from uh, a different experience from watching the film that makes both equally interesting to check out. Definitely, like yeah, but I I, I know the 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 Gilman is green. He was that way in toys. He's that way in the comics, and he's usually that way in shown in modern media. But like you know, there's always still that little like weird hiccup in the back of my brain where I saw the movie first, and I'm like, hey, the Gilman's kind of gray and black. What are you talking about? <laughs> All right. Well, I, I mean, is that is that it? Does anybody have any final words, or should we go into um, into awesome? Or um, I, I would say if you like Art Adams' artwork, which if you don't, what's wrong with you? You're you're an idiot. You're a buffoon. Now, um, if you just like really good artwork, and you're like Derek, and you love the Universal monsters, yeah, this is definitely. There's no reason not to pick this up. You know, it's like it's a really like yeah, it's just it's really beautiful to look at. It's just amazing yeah. art and. It's a really beautiful looking comic, yeah. And like I, I, didn't see, I haven't seen this movie since maybe like high school. So, but like once I read the adaptation, like I, I recalled like a lot of things. So, like, and I think he did a good job of capturing it, like in his own style. Yeah, I, I, I think it was. I mean, it, I, I just have a lot of fond memories of it, and, and you know, the movie and the adaptation and the creature, and and I think if you if you've never heard of it, then. You know, I, I don't know if this is like super obvious to anybody who collects comics or if it's this undiscovered gem of something that not everybody's heard of. But I think if you're, you're if you're into the Universal Monsters and you're you're jonesing for something to check out for Halloween, you know, like it's it's definitely something that's really really cool. So I I totally you know recommend checking it out if you're a fan of of the creature or if you're a fan of Art Adams. I'm for getting out of this lagoon just as fast as we can. Without taking what we came for? We didn't come here to fight with monsters. We're not equipped for it. We came here to find fossils. Later, later we can come back with a properly equipped expedition. So yeah, okay, I guess that, that wraps things up on Creature of the Black Lagoon. So now we will go into our regularly scheduled segment on the Fanholes Proper Podcast, which is What is Awesome in Your World This Week? And I, I just kind of wanted to give a, out a, a shameless plug for a friend of mine who is doing a short film. If you go to www.orphanistheneworange.com, if you are a fan of Orphan Black or you're a fan of, I, I forget what the other show is, the, the Orange is the New Black, I guess, is the prison show. Yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of a merger. It's a, it's a comedic merger of the two series and and if you're a fan of either of those series i think you'd totally enjoy watching the short film it basically you know she the 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 friend of mine plays the the i guess the clone character and so she gets to do a bunch of different funny interpretations of of the different clones and everything as the series progresses and uh, i i thought it was a lot of fun and she shared it with me and i just thought it'd be fun to share with everybody else if you haven't seen it go check that out i think it's also on funnierdie.com so she was asking everybody to you know of course market funny and and support that in that way but yeah i i really enjoyed it and i i told her as much on facebook and so she was you know she's excited at all the positive response it's getting but i thought i'd mention it on the show as well so that's that's kind of my awesome thing of the week and i just wanted to you know give her a shout out and everything so check that out it's orphan is the new orange.com and yeah, so so I guess I'll ask Mike because Portafoy is like staring me inquisitively in the face in his avatar. So I'm <laughs> going to ask Mike what his awesome thing of the week is. 
my awesome thing of the week is well, actually, it's like sort of an ending thing. But uh, the the comedy sketch show Key and Peele like had its last episode a couple weeks ago, and I've always been a fan of that show of uh, Jordan Peele and Keegan Michael Key. I, I I've always been a fan of skit shows, and I thought they were really good at it. And like they they lasted for five seasons. And it uh, like it, it's not like Comedy Central didn't cancel them, but they were they were just deciding to move on to new things. And like I thought the the last episode was really funny, and they they closed it out on a like blooper reel, which is always pretty like you know amusing. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna miss that show. That doesn't sound awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just messing around. Know. Oh, that's cool. Like I I imagine they'll probably have like cool box set of like all those seasons and everything for people that were fans that enjoyed the show and, and stuff. And and just for the record, speaking of Keegan Michael Key, it turns out he's Dwayne McDuffie's half brother and that is a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. No one gets that except bot talkers, so Exactly. Um and like Keegan Michael Key has been showing up in a lot of shit. Like, you know, I, like leaving Cam Peele like has not hurt him at all. He's like everywhere. I see him on all kinds of shit. So yeah, I think he he's a great like actor, you know, comedic or otherwise. So yeah, definitely. Cool. It is a good show. I like it. All right. So how about you, Tony? What's your awesome thing of the week, my man? Uh, I guess we'll do some Star Wars like plethora of goodness. <clears throat> I guess I got two things total. Um, I've been collecting the the recently re uh release Force Awakens, Titaniums, and Hot Wheels uh, die-cast ships. I got some more of those this week. I got, like, the First Order tie. I got the uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi's Naboo Star... Not Naboo, but uh, Jedi Starfighter from Episode 3. It's in the wave. I know it's not in the new movie, but, you know, hey, whatever. Yeah, I just like the ships. I'm a very, like, you know, I was telling Derek, you know, I'm kind of a tech head. I even do, like, I even started a little, like, techie thread on Bot Talk where we post that. And I just like ships. I like, I like, I don't know, I like vehicles. So that was really cool. And to go along with that, I guess Star Wars goodness for a horror-themed show, uh, <laughs> Rebels was released on DVD Season 1 uh, pretty recently, and I decided to pick it up because I like Rebels, and I missed, like, one or two episodes here and there. And I was like, yeah, I'll pick it up. And, yeah, it's a good, solid show. We did the uh, pilot a uh, while back, uh, God, a long time ago, it seems like. But it's it was yeah still a really good show. The second season is going to be premiering. It's already had like a debut premiere, but like the season proper is going to be starting up again soon on season two. So if you haven't had a chance to catch up with it, uh, it's a good good chance to do it. Pick up the DVD and figure out where things go on with uh, the arrival of Darth Vader in season two. Yeah, I, I I actually grabbed the Blu-ray probably the same time as you grabbed the DVD set. So I'll I'll go and recommend that as well because that was i mean at least that was fun and and i think the the season two kickoff episode that premiered of course i obviously has said that uh, as one of my awesome things in a previous episode so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing how that all plays out in the in the final analysis so cool i think i think that kind of wraps things up for our awesome thing of the week if you have any comments, questions, concerns, you can email us at fanholspodcast at gmail.com. We are on all kinds of social media. If you've been liking us or spreading our awesome Fanholes Podcast knowledge on the social medias, we thank you. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. 
we are on Tumblr, and our Tumblr's been blowing up lately, because I know Mike's been posting a bunch of cool shit, and that's been getting a lot of likes and reblogs and everything like that, so we definitely appreciate all the support on the Tumblr end of things. Uh, we are also on Instagram. We are on Stitcher Radio, where you can stream our podcast. And I believe Podbean now has an app, like I mentioned in previous shows. I have not been able to use it myself, but if you're into the Podbean app and your phone is compatible, you can check us out on there. We're on iTunes. We appreciate reviews and feedbacks on iTunes. And that about does it. So until the next Fanholes Fright Fest. <laughs> this is Derek, Derek WC, Portafoy, signing off. Eighty dollars. I don't believe I will stay here. <laughs> I don't. I don't believe I will sign off. <laughs> oh, and this was Tony. And you guys took all the good lines, so I'll just go with my eyes. Tony's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the, the sun is so golden. It's so golden. <laughs> Let me with Joe Crawford. They're not even good Joe Crawford. <laughs> Don't worry, we took all the good lines, so they're going to stick us in the painting and torture us for eternity. <laughs> Ed- editor- editorial note, Tony then fell out a window. <laughs> <laughs> he-, he broke the candy glass, and then we actually like spun a camera around on the floor or something and said he fell to his death. So. Ah!